So tonight's message is about hope. Some people think that hope means that the future may hold the possibility of greater things. Some people believe that things might get better when they're hopeful things. I think if we frame that another way, for some people hope means wishful thinking. It's a type of thinking that we employ when we say, well, we hope this thing will happen, but really what we really believe in our hearts is that might never actually happen, right? That's the hope that often most people in this world carry around with them. But that's not the hope that we as Christ followers understand. It's not the word hope that we associate with this beautiful time of the year, Christmas. See, I believe Christmas is all about hope. I say that because as Christ followers, our hope is not rooted in any particular probability. It's rooted in something that is reality. See, our hope is not built on what could be. It's built on what was. It's built on what is. And it's built on what's to come. That's the hope that we hold on to. It's rooted in confident expectation. And there's a reason for that. Because Christmas is the time when we celebrate the arrival of the most significant person that has ever arrived in all of history. He is the most significant person, past, present, or future, that will ever walk this earth. And we get to call him our king. That's the hope that Christmas is meant to instill in all of us as believers. That's the hope that I pray that you will leave with tonight because maybe you came here tonight hopeless. Maybe tonight you don't have much hope. My prayer is that tonight you'll leave more hopeful than you were when you got here. Christmas is a lot more than just decorating our houses. In my case, as Auntie pointed out, it's more than just overeating for me. I like to eat a lot on Christmas. I'm Italian. Don't blame me. Miss Diana will tell you we eat a lot during Christmas. Christmas is a lot more than just seeing family and just seeing friends and people that we haven't seen for a while. Christmas is a lot more than giving and receiving gifts. And while there's nothing wrong with those things, I particularly enjoy receiving gifts. Christmas is more than that. Christmas is about love. It's about an eternal love. The love of the creator God of the universe that he had for us that was so strong that it caused him to take on human flesh. To be born in a stable, no less. When we sing those songs away in the manger, I'm not sure if baby Jesus didn't actually cry. I would imagine he probably did cry, right? In his humanity, he must have cried as a baby. I mean, crying's not a sin. If it was, I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I mean, not that I cry a lot. But this is the same Jesus who came to this earth and died a death that was actually our death to die. Tell me that's not a love story. And if you're wondering why the God of the universe would do this, why would he step out of his eternality and come to this earth and die for our sins? Well, John 3.16 tells us, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whomsoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. You see, Jesus died that horrible, painful death so that you and I tonight or ever in the future would never have to. And what's more, this great exchange, his righteousness for our sin. Talk about a bad deal, but that's what we got. We got his righteousness. He got our sin. He gave us a hope, a hope to hold on to, not just tonight, but tomorrow and every day from this moment forward. And it's not a temporal hope. It's not a fickle hope. It's not a hope that is messed up by the sin-sick and sin-broken world. It's a hope that is eternal, friends. And it's with that in mind that I want to remind us some truths tonight about Christmas. I want us to remember some things that are fact, things that I believe will give us the ability to live our lives like the hopeful people that God called us to be. 
And so can I ask us just to bow our heads real quick. I want to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you are the God enthroned above. I thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth, and that's what we're celebrating right now. We're celebrating the season of Christmas, the moment when you became flesh, Lord Jesus, and died for our sins on the cross. We are so grateful for that. I cannot even explain it. And I pray that as we go through tonight, Lord, that you would instill in us a hope that is set on you, a hope that would become something that wells up inside of us, not because of any possible potential reality, but because of a truth, a real confident expectation that you are on the throne and you reign on high. And I pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So usually when we come to Christmas Eve services, we expect to hear sort of messages that are preached about the birth of Jesus, right? About his birth. We expect to hear about Mary and Joseph, the Magi. And of course, we don't want to forget the shepherds. And while all, all of those texts are great and they genuinely do speak to the birth of Jesus Christ, tonight I want to preach from a text that's not necessarily associated with something that you would normally hear on a Christmas Eve service. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John. See, Mark, I got it right. 1 John, not 1 John. 1 John. I'm getting better. My American is getting better. Turn with me to 1 John. We're going to read from chapter 1 and verse 1. We're going to read four verses tonight. I want to read them real quick and we'll unpack them as we go along. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, this verse is not naturally considered to be a Christmas verse because it doesn't speak about the birth of Jesus explicitly, does it? No, it doesn't. But I do want to say this to you. What John is doing in these verses is an obvious and concise explanation of what Jesus came to do on this earth. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. I want to focus on four truths that we can get from this passage of Scripture. The first truth is this, that we as Christ followers are to be the most hopeful people because Christmas for us is not an experience. I'm sorry if you came here tonight for an experience, but it's not an experience. Christmas for us is a historic reality. John says this, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, John's reminding us what Christmas truly means to us as believers. He's giving us an eyewitness account of a Savior that walked on this earth as a human being, not a figment of John's imagination. History proves it, and history stands by it, that this man came to this earth that was born, that lived a sinless life. And John wants us to know that he saw him, that he engaged with him, that he, that he had the opportunity to eat meals with him, and that at the Last Supper he laid his head on his shoulder. This is the same Jesus that would ultimately become John's best friend. But there's something else about this man, right? Because this man wasn't an ordinary man. In 1 John, John says this, that he was in the beginning, right? From the beginning. In other words, there's never been a time in all of creation where Jesus was not. Jesus was, is, and forever shall be. In the Gospel of John, he describes it this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. 
This man that walked on this earth, who is a historical fact, was no ordinary man, friends. He was the Son of God. His crucifixion witnessed by hundreds of people, written about. His resurrection witnessed by hundreds of people and written about. His ascension witnessed by hundreds of people and written about. This is not an experience I'm talking about, friends. This is a reality. And you should come on Christmas being more filled with hope than ever before because our faith is unlike any other religion in this world. I say that to you because religions are great at peddling philosophy, ideas, moments in time. Come and experience the God that I serve. Let me show you who He is. Christianity and this dual nature of who Jesus truly is, both fully human and fully God, makes this gospel so powerful because when we preach our message, we're not telling people to come and experience something. We're telling them this is what God did. Fact. He came. He died. He was resurrected. He ascended. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And I get so mad when I think of how often we as churches want to turn this gathering into an experience. Because what we really want is your approval of what we do. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying disapprove of what we do. <laughs> but we don't come here to experience Jesus. We come here to encounter Jesus. I want to leave you with an encounter with God. More than an experience that makes me feel fuzzy inside. I'm sorry, Catherine told me I shout a lot. You see, our message to this world is this is what God has done. And that's it. But guess what? That's good news. The second truth we have is that we as Christ followers should be the most hopeful people because Christmas tells us that our salvation is not earned. Christmas tells us that our salvation is a gift. John, in verse 2, in 1 John, he says, The life was made manifest. It was made visible. It was made real. For the first time in all of creation, the God-man himself was made known to us. And we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. And that's important. Which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Something critical is being com communicated to us in this verse. And I want to tell you that it's very easy to miss what, actually, what John is actually trying to tell us. When John says eternal life was with the Father and was made manifest to us, he's actually referring to the personhood of Jesus Christ. Now, I know everyone's like, well, duh. I mean, this is a Christmas Eve service. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. But if you could, just for a moment, consider what John is saying. Think about what this means for our hope. You see, because John's not just saying to us that Jesus has eternal life. John's not even telling us that Jesus can give us eternal life. What John is saying is Jesus is eternal life. In other words, there is only one way to be saved on this earth, and that is through Jesus Christ himself. No good works, no good deeds, no religion, no church attendance, no reading your Bible, no praying. None of that cool stuff that we do as believers is going to earn you any state of privilege in the kingdom. Jesus is eternal life. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what's going to give you hope because I know, friends, that I'm a fallible human being. I know that I mess up all the time. Just ask Catherine. She'll tell you. I know that I make mistakes. I know that I commit sin. And I know that sometimes I fail. You see, when we realize that our salvation has got nothing to do with what we do, but it's through our faith in Jesus, through Christ alone, by faith alone in Christ alone is our faith built, Right? That's what grace means. When we have that revelation, when we finally understand it, we start to receive a real true identity, an identity that's filled with hope. I say that to you because when we believe we can do something to earn God's love, we have this weird sort of humbled pride. 
We think that actually, you know, God, I know you did a lot, but you know what? I've done a lot too for you, and so that's fine. And we come with this weird pride to the throne and we say, look what I've done, Lord, I deserve it. But when we truly believe that what Jesus did was sufficient for us on the cross, he gives us something that's so powerful. He gives us an identity that deals with our greatest insecurity, the insecurity of failure. Because what he says to us is when you're weak, I'm strong. That's the kind of God that I want to serve. And that, friends, gives me hope. You might be here tonight and thinking to yourself, but Mark, you have no idea who I am. You don't know what I've done, what I've said, how badly I've behaved, how much I disobeyed my parents, what I did in my past life or the life beyond that, whatever it is that you've got that you're carrying tonight that makes you feel unworthy, you need to understand one thing. It's got nothing to do with what you've done. It's got to do everything. It's got everything to do with what Jesus did. That's what Christmas is about. The third truth that I have for us tonight is that we can have hope because Christmas means that we can have fellowship with God. John uses this word a lot in this verse, in verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God didn't just wait for man to try and work himself out so that he could one day reach the heavens and reach God. No, he came down for us, right? He just said, listen, I'm going to come to you. You don't have to come to me. Don't build towers to me. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to come to you in human form. But what John's also saying is that he came for a reason. And the reason he came from is this word fellowship. It comes from the Greek word koinoina. And what it means is this, the communion or common faith reality and expression shared by the family of believers, as well as the intimate relationship they have with God. And so if you haven't been paying attention to it, let me summarize what's been going on. The all-knowing, all-powerful, creator God of this universe chose to leave heaven, take on the helpless form of a human child, suffer want, temptation, and pain, also that he could have a relationship with us. I mean, doesn't that blow your mind? He wants to have a relationship with us. I just get blown away and I think, Lord, why would you want to have a relationship with me? I'm a messed up individual. I don't even talk much, Catherine says. She says, I don't communicate. So I'm not the greatest guy to want to have a relationship, but yet Jesus himself comes to this earth, goes to a manger, and he dies on the cross, he gets resurrected, he goes to heaven, he says, Mark, I want to have a relationship with you. Believe me, he does most of the talking. I don't. <laughs> but that's the amazing thing about this God that we serve. He speaks to us. It's not just any relationship. The relationship that we have with Jesus is a personal relationship. It's an intimate relationship. Now, I know that sometimes that's hard to understand because we think to ourselves, how is it possible to have a personal and intimate relationship with a God that's not even here? How do we do that? You know what blows my mind? If you think of people like John. John was alive when Jesus was alive. John went to dinner with Jesus. John prayed with Jesus. John prayed for the sick with Jesus. John saw Jesus perform miracles. John saw Jesus suffer. John saw Jesus die. John saw Jesus resurrected. John saw Jesus ascended. And then John fell off the face of the earth because he couldn't have a relationship anymore. That's not what my Bible says. That's mind-blowing, friends. The fact that John himself, post Jesus' ascension, would write this letter, 1 John, and say that it is possible to have fellowship with God proves to me that Jesus is who he says he is. Why? Because when Jesus left us, what did he give us? He gave us the Holy Spirit. 1 John, I mean, sorry, John 16, verse 7, says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 
And then later on in the book of Acts, Jesus leaves with a promise. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Do you know that John was far more effective for the king and the kingdom post Jesus' ascension than he was when Jesus was on earth? Why? Because the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, is the hope of glory. That same Jesus that lived in John is the same Jesus that lives in you, if you believe him. And with him, you can have a personal and intimate relationship. The last truth there for us, the band can come up, is that we can have hope this Christmas season. Because believing in who Jesus is means that we are the most joy-filled people in all of eternity. That's a big statement. But it's true. Verse 4, John finishes off his letter, and he say, or this part of the letter, and he says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy. Now what John's not saying is that our joy as the disciples can be complete, or our joy as the church fathers can be complete, or our joy as the apostles can be complete. He's saying our joy, collectively us, the body of Christ, the family of God, that our joy may be complete. Not a little bit complete, not halfway, not 75%, but 100% complete. That's what the revelation of Jesus Christ does in us. It gives us a joy. It gives us a joy that we don't understand. Now I know for a fact that sitting in this room tonight are people whose hearts are broken. I know for a fact that there are people in this room tonight whose years didn't work out the way they thought they were going to work out. Who have lost things, lost people, lost loved ones. Who have hearts that are potentially broken right now. But Jesus tells us that our joy will be complete. How does that even make sense? Well, he told us in John 16, 22, he says, So also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. He goes on in John 17, verse 13, to say this, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus promised us another thing, which really isn't the greatest thing that he ever told us, but he said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome this world. If you come to church to be told or want to be told that your life will be perfect now that you know Jesus, I can't do that. What I can tell you, though, is that when you know Jesus, there is a joy inside of you that you cannot actually explain. A joy in spite of the circumstances. A joy in spite of the pain. Tim Keller puts it this way, and I love it. He says, the joy that the New Testament speaks of is, of course, happiness. But it's not the kind that is a fizziness or giddiness that goes away in the face of negative circumstances. It's more like the ballast that keeps a ship stable and upright in the water. Our joy is a ballast, friends. It keeps us pointing to Jesus time and again. It keeps us focused on who He is. It keeps us steady in the face of tribulation and difficulty. There was this moment in the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you guys know the Lord of the Rings. Here I am weirding out on you. But in the third installment of the trilogy, it's called The Return of the King. There's this moment when Gandalf realizes and he has this revelation that he's probably going to lose this war. And he's filled with sorrow and desperation. But then all of a sudden, what does he do? He starts to laugh. He starts to bellow out this laughter. And you know why he does that? Because we have this revelation later on in the show that he knows how the story ends. You know that we know how the story ends. Can I ask you to stand? 
I want to read this passage of Scripture as we celebrate Jesus tonight. This is a promise that we were left with in the final book of the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not a fable, not a myth, not a story, but the truth of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. I know we look around the church today and we say the church is not ready for Jesus. And I, I can agree with you, we're not. But the promise here is one day we will be. And that's what Christmas gives us hope. It gives us the hope that one day we'll be ready for our King and that He will come back. He won't be a moment late. And in that moment, our joy will be fulfilled just as we were promised. The child that was spoken about in Isaiah 9 verse 2, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. And I want to say this to you tonight. is a child that is not concerned with race. He's not concerned with religion. He's not concerned with political affiliations. He's not concerned with what you've done for him. He is concerned with you. And he's concerned with me. That's who we celebrate tomorrow. And just to be clear, tomorrow's not Jesus' birthday. Just to make sure, it's the celebration of his birthday. But that's the child that we celebrate tomorrow. And I want to ask us one last question as we go into this carol and we sing by candlelight. And I want you to contemplate this while you're singing this song. As much as he wants to know you, the real question is, do you want to know him? He's accessible, friends. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to remember all of these wonderful truths on Christmas. Truths that are not just ours to keep, but ours to share. And so I pray that in every single heart that is here tonight, that you would give us a heart to share these truths with those around us. Not in condemnation or in pride or religiosity. But as we talk about what the amazing thing is that you've done for us, a historical fact, Lord. And I pray that we would be the most hopeful people this Christmas season in spite of what's going on around us. I pray for any heart here that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would open their hearts. And I pray that you would speak to them directly. And we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.